in uh, Mississippi in ninth grade, you take Mississippi history and we had Mississippi history day and we were all supposed to dress up from something like from Mississippi history. And uh, so many of my classmates had the good taste to dress like, you know, farmers and pioneers and with suspenders and bonnets. And I got the idea, wouldn't it be funny to dress up like a Ku Klux Klan member? What was I thinking? Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound, conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Ellen Ann Fentress grew up a white girl in Mississippi, and it took her a long time to realize exactly what that meant. Starting in eighth grade, her parents sent her to a segregation academy one of the private schools that sprung up throughout the South after the federal government forced public schools to integrate. And from girlhood into womanhood, Ellen Ann took on the traditional roles of volunteer, helper, wife, and mother. Now she's written a personal history that tries to come to terms with all that. It's called The Steps We Take, a memoir of Southern reckoning. And she's also built a website called the Emissions Project, where people who grew up in the era of the segregation academies talk about their experiences. Ellen Ann explores deep roots of Southern culture and helps us understand how we live now and how we got here. Here's our conversation. Ellen Ann Fentress, I want to start with the work that you've done on segregation academies. So for those people who are listening who might not be familiar, could you just sort of describe what those are and were and how you ended up being in one? So in with Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, the decision, the South was very slow to comply to this in many places. I mean, some places voluntarily went ahead, but so many places, certainly in Mississippi, it was tooth and nail resisting it. The Citizens Council formed in Mississippi right at the time of Brown versus Board of Education decision, and their their primary organizing principle was to resist school integration by all means possible. And uh, so, and they did for 15 years, most places in uh, Mississippi, lots around the South, they were able to delay and delay because, you know, the language of Brown was with all deliberate speed, but there was no particular deadline. And the Mississippi legislature took that to heart. And so, but then with the Justice Department and citizens starting to um, protest and the suits were working their way through the courts, by 1969, the U.S. Supreme Court had received elegant Alexander versus Holmes County, Mississippi Board of Education, which consolidated 33. Uh, school integration cases into one. And in October of 1969, the U.S. Supreme Court changed the wording and they said, no, no more all deliberate speed. Now, you integrate now and we will parse the fine points later on. This is it. 
And uh, at that point, school districts all over the Mississippi and the South, for January of 1970, it was time to integrate. And at this point, some places, of course, in Greenwood, where I grew up, had formed an academy waiting for this day in 1966. But a lot of places, it was around 1969 or 1970 that all of a sudden, this the, the erasure of history, all of a sudden you look at the websites now and they say there was just this interest in forming an independent prep school in their town at this time. No, it was to avoid, uh, for the white children to avoid integration of public schools and to have an off-ramp. And you ended up going to a school called Pillow Academy. And first of all, was Pillow Academy named for somebody named Pillow? Yeah, that's the funny part. Yes, there was a there was a prominent family in the Delta name, the Pillow family, and they donated the land for the academy. But I know to anyone else, this sounds bizarre. Pillow Academy, like maybe I went to like Dust Ruffle Junior High. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, so how did you end up going there? And do you have any insight into sort of what your parents were thinking at that moment? Right. You, you know, they they were not like the founders of the academy or anything, but it sort of became, you know, just like the the momentum. Once the momentum started and more children and more children, their families were deciding to go there. It it was harder to resist that green in plenty of places. All the white children left public school. They went into the academy. The The public schools became the, the black space, the academy, the white space. I would have to say Greenwood at first was not that way. About 50%, I would say, of the white students remained in public school, but I, I didn't. And it was funny. It was like, isn't this the way white privilege works is that yeah my parents had they had already signed me up and they had paid the money but they didn't say so and I heard some of the other friends were going to go to the academy and when January came my two best friends were going and I couldn't imagine going to public school without them so I piped up and said I want to go too if they're going and my parents said you know that'll be okay and were you, I, I'm trying to imagine myself as an eighth grader back then, I probably would have been totally clueless to what was going on. Did you have a sense of sort of the bigger things that were happening behind all that? Or was it just like, oh, I have to go to a, no, a new school now? I was old enough that people that are my age know. Because, you know, if you were old enough, you were certainly hearing the grownups talk and you know what the issue was. So, yes, everybody knew why we were there. And it, but it's this idea of erasure of, of history and particularly Southern history, it so plays into this. This is so much a part of it because at my age, yes, you knew, but as soon as they could get away with it, uh, they being, I guess, you know, just the white status quo, this history was erased and it became about being a quality education. Well, let's talk about quality education because you, you know, tell some stories in this book that make it obvious what kind of quality education was in the offing. One of the things being that the death of Emmett Till, who was killed in 1955 in Mississippi, not too far from where you were, made not just national but international news. You didn't know about that until the 80s, right? Yes. I mean, if you wanted to hear about Emmett Till, probably the last place you should be was right where it happened, because it was just uh, it was just not discussed. And you were a grown up by then. So what did you feel like when you discovered this thing that probably everybody else knew about 
was just becoming news to you then. That's right. Yes. I was a, I was a reporter and I was like, and there was like, you know, as, as happens with reporters, I had hacked off a school suit, the school superintendent down there. And he wanted to know where, where a creature such as I had come from. And I told him from Greenwood and he said, ah, that's where they killed that young boy. And I, I didn't know what he was talking about. And you know what I did? Absolutely nothing. I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, well, that's him. And I went on home. But, you know, later on, I did understand that's exactly what he was talking about. Um, and then also there is the academy that's up um, in that area in Tallahatchie County where the trial was, with the land was donated by the sheriff, who was the sheriff at that time, who testified in the acquittal of the murderers. It, it's called, it, his name was Clarence Strider. The academy was called Strider Academy. One of the writers for our site talks about at that school, they didn't talk about it. That's That was just the name of the academy. And, and she was like, I was. Later on, when you start investigating and finding out the story, we knew all the last names. Names. These were recognizable people in the community that were involved in the case and were involved in the defense of the, um, the of the, the, the white murderers. Another story you tell on yourself is about a costume you wore to school one day. Could you sort of describe what that was all about? Yes. You know, you would ask, what is it like going to a segregation white flight academy? And I, I said, you know, it's like asking a fish, how's the water? And the fish says, what's water? This is how things play out in an academy. When you're in an all white space, I think, you know, the academies are, they sap resources and energy from the community, but also the damage it does for a, a child just growing up in this all white space and the insensitivity that, that comes with it and what you think is okay with just most horrifically not okay. We in uh, Mississippi in ninth grade, you take Mississippi history and we had Mississippi history day and we were all supposed to dress up from something like from Mississippi history. And uh, so many of my classmates had the good taste to dress like, you know, farmers and pioneers and with suspenders and bonnets. And I got the idea, wouldn't it be funny to dress up like a Ku Klux Klan member? What was I thinking? But you know what I was thinking? What everybody else was, I went home, got in the, the closet, found a sheet, wore it to school. My parents didn't say one word about it. No teacher said one word about it. No student did. And I remember we all marched. We had a parade and marched down the hall. And here I was doing it. And it's only in retrospect, I think, what was that about? How could that possibly have happened? And it did. This is just part of the environment you're growing up in that you think that's okay. You, you write in the book, you say that part of what was going on at that time was sort of a willful blindness or trying to keep kids like you and other people sort of blinded to what's going on. What do you think the people who were doing the blinding were afraid of? Integration, you know, and integration. And at the bottom of that, though, it's losing the white status quo then what do they say white hoarding of power and resources and the idea of integration just would interfere with the, at the most basic level of whites having the resources and not wanting to share them with others so you know they they 
then also, you know, there was always this, I think the Strider Academy essayist, um, Courtney Clark talks about this idea of interracial relationships. That would be the scare tactic. Maybe that's the emotional scare tactic, but the real bottom line is sharing resources, I think. How do you think your life might have been different had you just gone to an integrated school? I think it would have, I would have been, had less to unlearn than I have had uh, and, and to share that space and to go to school together and see people as people. It's shocking to me to think about here I was in the Mississippi Delta with the highest black population as a percentage wise anywhere in the country, I believe. And I did not know a single black young person, someone my age. It was only in later life I got to know uh, black young people from my age that are my cohort. And so what does it do to you? And then you're going to go into the world and hopefully be a, a well-intentioned citizen, but you're just have not, you've been so warped by this experience. So yeah, book learning. Okay. The book learning for better and worse. It was high school is what it is, but just the idea of growing up in that white space, what does that do to you? So at some point you decided to sort of explore other people's stories from these segregation academies. And you wrote an essay looking for people to tell you their stories. You started this project. It's a website where people are writing their own stories. First of all, what, what led you to want to kind of do that in the first place? I felt like this was something I could do. This is, um, I love this idea. I love the writer, George Saunders, uh, who talks about is with his writing students, you know, everybody, everybody can learn craft. There's so many, if you want to learn to write, you can learn craft, you can get better. There's so many polished writers, but what every writer needs to interrogate is what is their iconic space? What is the place, the time and place, your obsessions that is your story to tell? And I think that's, the fundamentally what came to me when I started the Academy story. But um, on the surface, what happened was in 2018, Cindy Hyde Smith, who is now the U.S. Senator from Mississippi, ran for when she was first running. There was a national story about, well, first it was a local story in the Jackson Free Press that was a photo from her yearbook from her segregation academy. She, like I was, was an academy graduate from um, South Mississippi. It's a picture of her as a cheer leader with a rebel mascot, like a Colonel Rebel type character standing above the girls. I was surprised that the nation was surprised because if you grew up like me at this time, so many people my age that are white graduated from an academy. I could name some, you know, like the um, novelist Donna Tart, the um, help novelist Catherine Stockett, Steve Yarborough, wonderful novelist from the Delta, um, Celia Ward, actor from Meridian. And then, but then I caught myself, like how normalized this is for us not to be surprised and that just take this as a matter of course. So maybe this was something that I needed to explore and, and make it not so normal. Let's interrogate our experience. You know, Mississippi, one thing I, I think as a Southerner and certainly as a Mississippian is that when there's this tendency to see Mississippi as this grotesque outlier, it's actually the opposite. It's a way to see the United States in easy read. And some of these, it's just so easy. The idea of a segregation academy is so blatant. Yet, isn't this the case in so many things in American life where there are these spaces, spaces for white people to not be a part of the, 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 of the diverse population? You know, Black Mississippians your age knew of 
those academies, and I'm sure people in Greenwood knew of Pillow Academy specifically. Do you remember having conversations as a an adult with black Mississippians from that area where somewhere it comes back around to where you go to high school and it got really awkward after that? Well, I wanted, you know, as 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 a white privileged uh, person, I tried to cherry pick that experience. I, I never put it on my Facebook profile and I tried to stay away from that. And, you know, that's one thing I interrogate on my site about, yeah, how privileged is that to cherry pick my history of what people are going to know about me and what they don't. So I've, I've tried to be more forthcoming about it. And I think some several other of the essayists on the site say the same thing, that when they get maybe as a teacher, they come into the classroom on their first day and explain where they came from and how understand this is my experience and I'm trying to do better, but I'm learning as I go along. When I wrote my essay originally that started my site, I had talked to um, a friend of mine in Greenwood who was African-American who grew up at the same time I did. But of course, I never knew him then. He was at um, Greenwood High School. He said he didn't even know that Pillow existed. A couple of people on your website talk about having gone back to reunions for their schools um, and what that was like. Have you ever done that? I've I've always gone to my reunion. I'm the kind of person that thinks you have to go to a reunion. (laughs) occurred to me that not everybody thinks that. Uh, But, you know, I started the website in 2019, and then there was the pandemic. There's been no reunion since then, so that hasn't happened. I would have to say I have been trying to get someone else from my academy to write a story ever since, and I have not found one other person who would write a story. Am I the only, like, malcontent? I don't think so. I've had several people from the academy tell me that they really enjoy my project. It's, It's spot on. They love to read it. Will they read this? Will they write a story? Absolutely not. When we come back, Ellen Ann Fentress talks about how the South glosses over its problems. But it seems like the ways of the South are this way of like, as long as it looks okay on the outside, maybe they're okay on the inside. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Ellen Ann Fentra. And this website you've put together is kind of folded into this larger context of what, you know, you talk about volunteering a lot in your book. Part of what you talk about is how this work is often in the South done by women. What made you decide to to kind of focus in on that part of it? 
I felt like volunteering became a lens just for so much. It it showed, it was a way to show because I, mean, I wanted to come with my full self and be honest about things. If you go as, as a memoir writer yourself, you can't come into it as a saint or not only is it a lie, but it's just nauseating to read something like that. You've got to come with your whole self and with all your flaws. And every time I was a volunteer, yes, I, maybe I was doing something of a little good, but also there was a whole lot of an ulterior motive and what's in it for me. It was a way to get out in a wider world than the, the, the than, um, my little, uh, you know, my little tiny world was would allow me to be in as a child. And it was just a way to get out. So I felt like it was a window into my ulterior motives as I went along. But also it was a way to show what the culture thought that a woman should be about. Uh, I say a woman, a teenage girl should be about. Um, so at, at different stages of my life, as I have a, a volunteer job as a high school student, as a college student in the Baptist Student Union, and then later as a at-home um, wife and mother, and then now coming to telling the story of the um, segregation academies and just public school in the South and how race is intersected with public school education as well. I get the feeling that you kind of think of some of this volunteerism, some of this giving, especially when performed by Southern women as a bit of a trap. Absolutely, because it's what the culture thought you, that idea of volunteering at, at different stages of my life becomes a lens to see what the culture smiles on um, uh, on a female doing. So it, it says a lot about the culture too. And was it nice to collect quarters for the March of Dimes to go try to talk to people at the homeless shelter and to, uh, to have meals on wheels. Sure. It was nice, but also, you know, in some ways it was, it was putting a bandaid on what our culture had created as well. As part of these, one of these essays, a couple of these essays, you write about a black woman who was your housekeeper for a while. At some point, you kind of go back to her years later, try to talk to her some, maybe go a little deeper into what that relationship meant to you and to her. And there's some, you know, awkward conversations there. Why did you feel like that was important to you to kind of delve back into that? For two reasons. One, just personally, as I moved along in my journey to think about this relationship, and it's such you know, it's just such a, you know, uh, cast typing in the South, how many times a white woman had a black woman working in her house that made the white woman's life possible. Boy, what, what a relationship that is. And also on the bigger scale that here I am in Jackson, Mississippi, where the book The Help is set. Um, in the early 1960s. So here, here we are. So it, it was certainly something to explore from that level too. It sounded like there's a, a mixed reaction to the help there. Like some people thought it sort of glossed over, you know, black-white relationships back then. But other folks seem to think that there was something at the core of it. Because in in the book and the movie, too, the black women are clearly the, the heroes. Do you, I felt like there was kind of a range of reactions to it there. 
There was, but it, it is funny. Um, it it was the whole range from uh, from the most you know right reactionary to to a more progressive stance of criticism of it. Um, there were plenty of women on the right in uh, Jackson who would were incensed that white women were uh, were portrayed as being so mean and racist and unfeeling about the people working in their house. But then also on the other end of the spectrum, here is the heroine is sort of the white savior. I think especially in the book, it comes out that way more than maybe in the movie, but it, it comes out that way. The idea that it took a white woman to do all this good when and, and the black women characters kind of feel a little passive about it. I think Viola Davis has said, wonderful actor, actor in the movie, has said now she kind of regrets having done the movie. It struck me as you were talking about trying to have these conversations with your former housekeeper, the power imbalance there. Even after she wasn't working for you anymore, there might have been a cost to her speaking out that you would never have to pay. You know, I think we think about why don't more people speak out about certain things without thinking much about the price that might be paid for that. That's right. When you think about the, oh, we're having this conversation among, we're just having this conversation as a friend, but is it always? There's just so much in this like white normalized privileged uh, mindset that I, I, I don't think about that there's a price for the other person to pay that's just not even an issue in my life. Um, I've heard someone say one time that maybe white privileged is a too loaded a word because there are plenty of white people out there that would argue, do they have that much privilege? Maybe it's just white advantage is a better way. I've heard someone use that term and I like that. That idea of there being a, a cost of speaking out. I also started thinking about when I read the passages in the book uh, about your ex-husband. Uh, who had a drinking problem and sometimes in various ways took it out on you and you were, it's you're writing trying to decide what you want to do about this and eventually get a divorce and i think from the outside a lot of people hear that sort of thing it's like why don't you just walk away the first time it happened or whatever but i think you got into and maybe you can talk about a little more the difficulties of dealing with that in the moment well, when there are children involved, you have to weigh what's what's best for the children. And uh, I think you that that certainly becomes a, a factor for anyone, certainly for an at-home mother who doesn't have a job, that you think about that. Um, but also just your lovely life, everything about your life. And I'm not just saying material things, just about the way your routine and your rituals and the way things work. So there's a lot there to, to weigh. And and I think also maybe the South, maybe I'm conflating way too much here, but it seems like the ways of the South are this way of like, as long as it looks okay on the outside, maybe they're okay on the inside. And maybe let's not worry too much about what's on the inside. And and, and uh, as long as we can keep it looking oh good, good, it's okay. Uh, you, you mentioned to me as we were emailing back and forth about this interview that from the time you were young, you were a little skeptical of all the authority around you, maybe because what you could see with your eyes was different than what people were projecting out to the world. How do you think that sort of affected how you interpreted things as you got older? 
there was this disconnect between my outer world and my inner world. And I was a well-behaved child um, and uh, I didn't make waves. And that was, I was, I was a good child. That was the, a 1950s good child was one who didn't make waves. And every time I would see a disconnect in the outer world and my inner world of what I've been taught about, Jesus loves the little children and we were all to love everybody. I just kind of, I filed it away, but i I just didn't do anything about it. It was like I had taken a kind of a disconnect between the inner and outer world as just part of the deal. So I don't want to leave any kind of impression that I was like, um, I was the Gandhi of five-year-olds because I wasn't. I just kind of like, I just kind of moved it along. But I always saw that disconnect about how come we're having this world of we're resisting civil rights, but we're learning in Sunday school that red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. But I didn't, I didn't ask anyone. I just took, that's just part of the deal. At some point, uh, to to go back to the passages where you talk about your ex and and the struggles you had with him, you decide to get some counseling. Now, there are many, many, many reasons why people resist counseling, and you resisted it yourself, too, for a while. Uh, But I'm wondering, in your specific case, was there any chance that you felt like you decided you didn't want help because you had always been the helper? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And it's just you get this idea in your help that it is my job to make everything work and I can handle it. You always think I can do a little more. I can do this. All you have to do. And aren't we taught that as children that um, all you have to do is work harder and you can make things work. And so I took that as my as my calling. And then also, I think it's it's funny as I talk about my therapy sessions, I went into it just like one more party. And I went in with a smile on my face and I was gracious to the therapist and I always was watching my time. Finally, the therapist said, don't look at the clock. That's my job. But I always was mindful of, you know, of the therapist's feelings and keeping things light. And that's ridiculous. But I just went into it with that whole veneer of that, too. And eventually it it took I think that's typical for therapy. They always say it takes a few sessions for the real reason you're there to come out. And it certainly did in my case that initial therapy therapy session he was so delightful and he just played along I guess he can name that tune in one note and he just kept it like a party as long as it would I would have to say this is something that's that's been like one of the most um poignant moments of uh, the book is that I, I, I told him I ran into the therapist in the bank line about a month ago and I said have you seen the book because I used his real name and he had not I had told him about it but he'd even forgotten that I had told him that he went and got the book and my therapy group is still going on and it's a group therapy on Tuesday nights and um, they invited me so everybody got the book and uh, my therapist in good southern style he polished his Francis the first silver, made a divine chocolate dessert, pressed little white cloth napkins, and we all had dessert and talked about my book. I I did wonder, you talk about a lot of, you know, living people here. Uh, Your ex-husband has passed now, but you had two daughters. You have, you know, this woman who was your housekeeper, lots of other folks that you name in the book. I was wondering if there's been any feedback or blowback to any of the things you wrote in there. Here's the thing, and Tommy, you're a writer, you know how it goes. The people that you're concerned about, sometimes they're okay about it. And it's the thing that you, it's the most benign mention is the one that's going to end up causing the guff. And, you know, I've had a little of that, things that were just kind of like, 
you know, off the off the cuff comments of mine have like irritated some people, but I would have to say everybody involved has been so supportive. I've, I've changed some names. Um, and that's that's in the there's a there, there's a caveat at the first that mentions that and some some I didn't and um, but you know I've had it uh, I'm, uh, I so adore the memoirist Mary Carr and she talks about there's a point in it when someone in a book when they see you have truly worked to to cover the situation honestly and reflect on it hard there there's a willingness to go there and there's a, maybe a little sense of honor that you have worked to make it that hard because I tried to be both fair to everybody in the book and but fair to myself as well and to do it down the I'm sure I've made some mistakes but I, I honestly tried to make it fair to everybody. And I think Anne Lamott said, uh, if the people you write about don't like what you wrote about them, they should have behaved better, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm up with that one, yes. So, Eleanor, let me, uh, just to kind of uh, wrap up here, I want to kind of get a sense of what you think. Is there like a common theme to the things you've written about? You know, you wrote about this volunteer work. You've written about your husband. You've written about this segregation academy project and, and many other things that we haven't gotten to uh, in, in this conversation. But do you feel like it adds up to something? Is there like a common theme to you? Maybe something you've learned or something you hope others learn from what you've assembled? I feel like it's that we all have both, we're both an individual, but we also come into this world into a living, breathing pond of a life with this, that you are part of an organic whole with, um, you, you're coming into a time and place. And look at that, look at that script that is, that you're, have been assigned. And understand what part of it and question what part is yours and what part is the world you're in. And mine is a very Mississippi Southern woman, middle-class story. I hope that to making it that precise, hopefully it's a jumping off place for anyone to read and to interrogate the script in their life and to understand and question the ways that they want to embrace that script and the ways they want to push back. There's a private school in my hometown down in Georgia that I never paid much attention to, except for thinking that's where the rich kids went. Ellen M. Fentress talked about how the segregation academies in the South all sprung up at the end of the 60s or beginning of the 70s. So I was curious. I looked up that school from my hometown to see when it was founded. Sure enough, 1971. Nobody calls schools like that segregation academies anymore. But that's exactly what a lot of private schools in the South still are. They're designed to give white parents an off-ramp to keep their kids away from black and brown children. And what results is the blindness Ellen Ann talks about, where kids don't get a chance to learn about kids who are different from them and don't get a chance to learn from kids who are different from them. It teaches all the wrong lessons. And in some places, especially in the South, they're trying to turn public schools into places that teach a sort of segregated history, where books that might lead young minds to question what they've been taught are pulled from classrooms and libraries. It is a constant tug of war, not just to speak the truth, but to make sure others get to hear it. 
Ellen Ann Fentress is doing her part. The rest of us need to get down there and pull on the rope with her. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Joshua Lee Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on our website. Just go to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.